Welcome listeners to the Editor's Desk, our regular First Things podcast. This is Rusty Reno and I am at the Editor's Desk and joining me is Daniel McCarthy, editor of Modern Age and author of a review in the August-September issue, a review of Yoram Hazoni's book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, in com- combination with Matthew Continenti's book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. And we gave the title of this review that we gave the title, The Right Right, as Dan um, gives us a, 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 a tour of the various options facing the American right in the early decades of the 21st century. So Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rusty. It's a delight to be here. Matthew Continetti, you begin, you do a very fine job giving the reader a sense of what these two books are about. Um, and you, Continetti's is a is more of a straightforward history, it seems. Azoni's is a more ambitious both um, surveying historical figures and and um, laying out a more theoretical approach. But so what is Continenti's project in this book? Yeah, both of these books are uh, very ambitious. So Matthew Continenti's The Right covers a full century of both political and uh, intellectual conservatism uh, going from the 1920s until basically the beginning of the Joe Biden administration. And his argument is that there's something of a cycle or a circuit that is completed during that century. Um, The American right of the Calvin Coolidge era was somewhat protectionist. It was uh, somewhat hands-off in terms of its uh, foreign policy engagements. And it was uh, rather skeptical of free trade. It was in favor of tariffs and uh, a certain degree of protection for American industry. And so these are themes that have come back into the Republican party since Donald Trump Uh, emerged as uh, the party's leader. And uh, one of the uh, sort of implications of Continenti's narrative, and there's so much that he tries to pack into this book of just 500 pages, that he has to go rather breezily through a lot of his material. But uh, one of the uh, sort of overarching narratives that emerges is the idea that the attempt to broaden the uh, mind of the right uh, over the course of the last 100 years to introduce certain uh, what might be considered cosmopolitan or liberal themes uh, to uh, you know, have a right that wanted to be more engaged in the world, both in terms of foreign policy and in terms of uh, trade and immigration, that this project basically was unsuccessful. And uh, I think Continetti, um, you know, he is someone who has a familial connection and a professional connection to uh, the neoconservatism that had been prominent during the George W. Bush years and that it first emerged on the right uh, really in the late 60s and early 1970s. Continetti uh, is married into the Crystal family uh, whose patriarch, Irving Kristol, was the uh, uh, sort of self-identified godfather of neoconservatism. Uh, Continenti got his professional start at the Weekly Standard, which was the magazine founded and run by Bill Kristol. So um, Continenti, I think, has a certain familial connection and personal connection to uh, the neoconservative project. And there's a certain amount of pessimism, I think, that comes through in his book as a result of the failure of the neoconservative project over the last 20 years. You used, you, one way that you that you, you report that one way that Cottonetti uh, characterizes this hundred years is this tension between um, a populist impulse on the American right and what he thinks is the better impulse on the American right. How, how does that come out in the book? Like what, it, what does it mean to talk about this populist element of American conservatism? 
Populism relates to some of the issues I mentioned earlier, uh, focusing on America itself as opposed to uh, a integration of a world system with a grand uh, kind of philosophical or ideological project, in particular, a project that I think many of us would call neoliberalism, but it also has many parallels with neoconservatism. Um, Continetti sees the Republican Party of the 1920s as being quite populist. Um, and uh, basically what happens is that uh, after the Great Depression, the Republican Party loses its electoral mojo. And at the same time, Continetti uh, portrays a, a picture of conservative intellectuals as also being out of touch with the American public. And I don't agree with him on some of his assessments here, but he, for example, uh, you know, is quite critical of uh, the conservatives who are supporting Senator Joseph McCarthy in his uh, you know, sort of um, uh, identification of communist subversion as a major threat to the United States in the 1950s. Um, Continetti tends to look at the conservative movement, both intellectually and politically, of the early post-war era in the 1950s and 1960s as largely unsuccessful. Uh, the fact that Barry Goldwater never becomes president is one index of that. The fact that uh, Robert A. Taft, who was uh, Mr. Republican in the 1950s and was the, seen as the more conservative alternative to Dwight Eisenhower, the fact that he never even gets the Republican nomination for president uh, is another indication of uh, you know, the sort of failure of the post-war right in Continetti's view. And uh, philosophically as well, you have a number of very interesting thinkers like Wilmore Kendall and James Burnham appearing in the pages of National Review early on, uh, and others as well, um, you know, including uh, William F. Buckley himself. But Continetti sees them all as investing too much in uh, some of the um, fringe matters of the Cold War, things like supporting uh, Senator McCarthy. And also, um, you know, he takes a, a conventional view of the um, National Review's uh, commitment to defending the South uh, in the midst of the era of segregation. And NR was never, you know, a, a fire-breathing segregationist publication, but it was a publication which made conventional conservative arguments against democracy, but applied that to black voting rights in the South during the Jim Crow era. And of course, that creates, uh, you know, a number of, uh, you know, uncomfortable discussions for conservatives today. I, I, I'm sympathetic with your 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 thinking here. I mean, to say that. Um... Richard Weaver or James Burnham or whomever was unsuccessful uh, because, or that a certain kind of conservatism was unsuccessful because it didn't win the Republican nomination is like saying the new left was unsuccessful because, you know, George McGovern, McGovern got slaughtered by Richard Nixon in 1972. But it's, it's transparently the case that the ideas of the new left have been massively influential over the last 50 years of American society. And That's right, although Continetti's uh, evaluation of this is to the extent that the more populist and uh, more nationalist elements of the intellectual right wound up triumphing in the end over the course of 100 years, um, I think he sees that as a, you know, a rather bad thing. Uh, so even to the extent that the uh, in intellectual right does succeed, it succeeds in the ways that he thinks are, you know, uh, generally detrimental and generally are not uh, what he wants to see prevail. Yeah, I guess when I, 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 I'm familiar with this thinking. I mean, part of it is the notion that uh, the vast administrative state is necessary given the realities of modern life. And then certainly our expansive uh, global footprint 
of American power is necessary given, you know, Cold War realities and then post-Cold War realities, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see this kind of thinking, you know, uh, we have to govern in light of the realities of the world in which we live. And those realities are, are defined or the liberal establishment governs because it, uh, it reckons with these realities, whereas conservatives don't govern successfully because we refuse to reckon with these realities and rebel against them. Is that a fair characterization of Continetti's outlook? That's exactly right. So he sees uh, America as having a very strong liberal tradition. Uh, he may not go as far as Lewis Hartz in saying that liberalism is America's only tradition, but it certainly is a, uh, a dominant one in the uh, American historical context. And so he thinks that a conservatism which is not uh, sufficiently engaged with liberalism and sufficiently supportive of a certain kind of liberalism is going to be either a failure on the electoral level or even if it succeeds in gaining office, it will be unsuccessful in governing well because uh, the realities of our world, especially the realities as created by uh, America's elite, America's you know, sort of uh, institutions of power, not just in government, but in the private sector as well, all of them have a generally liberal orientation. The conservatism that doesn't take account of that is going to be doomed to uh, frustration. In the end of the essay, you refer to Continetti's approach as a conservatism of surrender. Uh, you make, I think, the astute observation, the correct observation that conservatism as an ism really emerges only when society loses its intuitive uh, commitment to continuity of tradition. And you have to be self-consciously trying to shore up what's being dissolved by uh, uh, the forces of modernity. And that there are two different, um, there are two different dangers. One is the danger that you concede too much to these dissolving forces of modernity. Um, and you think continuity falls into that, that danger. Yeah, that's the uh, pitfall on that side of the spectrum. So, um, you know, you can make a case uh, as continuity would that he is acknowledging reality and that he's trying to introduce enough conservatism into a fundamentally liberal system in order to make that system viable and humane. Uh, but the problem is, if you concede too much to this ideological system, which is constantly transforming uh, our lives and our laws, uh, you may wind up uh, simply playing catch up with uh, the progressivism of you know, 20 years earlier. And uh, you know, the, uh, one of the founding slogans of National Review was the idea of standing athwart history, shouting stop. Uh, but oftentimes it sounds as if conservatives are a little bit behind history, shouting wait for me instead. Or or you're going to get it one way or the other. We'll just do it a little more slowly. <laughs> a little more slowly. Um, you're going to give. You're going to. We're going to turn the heat up on the pot. A little more responsibly. You know that would be the claim that I think the defenders of that view would make. And uh, you know, it's. Um, I think it, a lot of conservatives look at this and they, uh, you know, quite correctly say that uh, this really is not what they're fighting for. And well, uh, right. I mean, you have the Nixon administration, which is the. Education Department, the EPA, growth of the administrative state, the George H.W. Bush administration is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And, you know, you get um, W's administration and you get further, you know, you get the prescription drug benefit. And so if you're a, I mean, those are all arguably, if, if we do it, we'll do it more responsibly, but it's going to happen one way or the other. Well, even beyond that, there are, you know, some more fundamental moral questions, especially about the place of religion in American life mm. and uh, what our principles and, you know, sort of virtues and values are. 
And, um, you know, liberalism takes a, uh, at best, a rather uh, distant view of religion. It wants to keep it at arm's length. And uh, so a conservative who considers himself to be conserving either a, uh, a condominium with liberalism or liberalism itself is going to, uh, you know, want to see a rather more limited role, I think, for religion in public life than you would get from a conservative who thinks that religion is, in fact, uh, sort of the taproom and the lifeblood of conservatism. And I should say, I mean, I don't want to make it sound as if uh, Continetti is a secularist. Um, the, the, the tension in Continetti's thought between a commitment to liberalism and a recognition that liberalism is insufficiently uh, committed to religion, uh, this is a tension you can also find in Irving Kristol himself. And it's something I try to bring out in my review. And there's a very yes. interesting quote from Irving Kristol in uh, Joram Bazzoni's book, in which uh, Kristol says, well, first of all, uh, you know, Kristol had quite uh, publicly said in his writings that he thought uh, the American founding generation was too neglectful of religion, that they took too much for granted. And uh, there is a private conversation reported in one of the footnotes in Hazoni's book, in which uh, Irving Kristol says that, um, well, that a, a Christian country uh, should have an electorate that is Christian and should not feel as if it has to provide voting rights to non-Christians in much the same way that uh, someone might say of, of Israel, that as a Jewish state, uh, it should have a Jewish electorate and should not be a pluralistic state with um, you know, uh, voters from many different uh, religious backgrounds. Now, that's a very radical thought, and it's something, again, that's reported as a, a private conversation in a footnote in Hazoni's book. And it's, uh, it's hard to see exactly where uh, Irving Kristol might have taken that idea. But clearly, there's a, there's a tension there, because on the one hand, Kristol recognizes that there is a certain moral deficiency in American liberalism and perhaps in American constitutionalism as a result of its uh, arm's length approach to religion. And yet, uh, I also think that if you look at the published writings of Irving Kristol, you won't find anything like that private remark. And uh, I think Kristol saw that as uh, maybe privately being what he would optimally desire, but being an impossibility in the world in which we live. Or a thought experiment to dramatize the important role of religion in public life. Well, let's p pivot to Hazoni's book because uh, that uh, he does represent a dramatic alternative to what Continetti puts forward as the ideal for the American right. That's right. So if Continetti is broadly within the tradition that says America has a strongly liberal founding and the American constitutional order is one that at a minimum must be largely liberal, if not entirely and foundationally liberal. Um, content, uh, sorry, Hazoni is trying to do the opposite. He's trying to show that in fact, there is a broad Anglo-American tradition of conservatism that is not predicated upon liberalism and that we have a constitutional tradition that is not fully liberal. And uh, he's also arguing that there is a distinct conservative philosophy uh, of which he is uh, you know, uh, an exponent, which is distinct from liberalism and is uh, not to be confused with it. And he believes that this issues in or should be founded upon a certain conservative uh, way of life. And so you have these three components, the history, philosophy, and the way of life, um, each of which is argued for separately in Hazoni's book. And, um, you know, I mean, it's a very, very provocative book and one I encourage uh, our readers and listeners to engage with. Uh, it does seem to me that in trying to take on all three of those themes uh, in the course of 400 or 500 pages, Hazoni too is, has taken on uh, rather more than a single volume can really accommodate. But as a, a conversation starter, it is certainly uh, second to none. You draw out some paradoxes in Hazoni's um, uh, thinking. Um, one of them has to do with the religious element the heroes of his 
conservative narrative or heroes of this conser modern conservative uh, view. He traces this back in the English context are are really rooted in a kind of um, establishment ang Anglicanism. Uh, and, and you point out that in the American context, instead of Anglican conservatism, it's Puritan perfectionism that actually has a deep and profound influence on our national culture. So yeah, it's, you have, I mean, yeah, Anglicanism almost, I mean, they, they went to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and American Anglicanism in the, uh, the founding generation was quite, um, uh, quite complacent, uh, especially in a, a state like Virginia. So you had a number of uh, Virginian Anglicans or uh, Virginians who would take part in the Anglican communion, who nevertheless were deists or had you know, very faint beliefs or who may have been Unitarians. Now, uh, you also of course have uh, people who are descendants of the Puritans like the Adams family, which had a tendency towards Unitarianism as well. So the American uh, religious context, you know, as far back as the founding and certainly in the colonial era was highly complex and um, I think it, it sets un, uh, you know, uneasily with the idea of taking Anglicanism and the Church of England as uh, sort of the paradigmatic model uh, for our own uh, polity. And of course, uh, in, in England itself, there are uh, many difficulties. So Hazoni would like to, and, and he has very close uh, ties with a number of uh, Calvinist thinkers who uh, you know, want to have a, a much stronger role for bi biblical thought uh, in politics, uh, not just in a uh, in terms of the uh, the public square being uh, you know sort of filled with Christian symbols, but also the idea that the Bible should be foundational not only to our culture but also to our law and to the way in which we approach politics. And uh, that is you know it's not an exclusively puritanical idea by any means, of course. But the Puritans, I think, express that idea of a biblical polity uh, to a much more heightened degree than uh, Anglicans and others who are drawing upon natural law traditions, uh, classical traditions as well. And Hazoni uh, uh, is generally rather um, cool toward uh, the natural law tradition. Um, I think he associates natural law because it is um, based in reason and based in a universal uh, idea of nature. I think he associates it not only with enlightenment rationalism, which he and other conservatives strongly oppose, but I also think he uh, associates it somewhat with the idea of the Roman Catholic Church uh, and its tradition and its very strong recognition of natural law. And then he tends to associate the Roman Catholic Church with the Roman Empire. And so uh, there are certain uh, historical um, conflations, perhaps, that one finds in Hazoni, which lead him to want to reject, uh, you know, in one fell swoop, uh, you know, a certain Catholic tendency, perhaps, in, in political thought, uh, natural law and also uh, the idea of a kind of unitary or universal uh, Roman imperial model of politics. Yes, I mean, you do point out there's a kind of hostility to Catholicism or a presumption that Catholicism is hostile to his own vision of uh, um, national conservatism. Um, That's although right, historically, yeah. yeah, historically, um, French Catholics have uh, been, have been able to harbor intensely nationalistic feelings, it seems. So what, you know, when I remember um, uh, early on when I was, took over as editor, Jim Nichterlein uh, was chatting with me and he insisted that First Things was always committed to conservative liberalism, not liberal conservatism. Uh, 
And that was an, I had never heard that distinction, but it's a kind of helpful distinction, it seems to me. And Continetti would fall into the category of a conservative liberal by your, by your account of, in your review, it would seem. Yeah, that's the, uh, the term I use. But you know, um, in fairness, these are uh, borderland issues, aren't they? So uh, when you look at someone like Alexis de Tocqueville, for example, he had uh, liberal political affiliations in the 19th century. He's mm. usually characterized as a political liberal, but he's clearly one who has a moral depth and an understanding of uh, you know, the human psyche and the role of the spirit within it that uh, lends him to certain conservative conclusions in his sociological thought. So, um, you know, and, and no, for I that matter- say someone like Tocqueville, he, he presumes that uh, the democratic spirit will dominate the modern era and he wants to trim its excesses or limit the damage it does to these deeper enduring human goods. And I think that would That's make right. him a, a conservative liberal, uh, liberal by default, but wants to, um, wants to constrain it. And I, I put Burke in the same category. Yeah, I would, I tend to agree. So as opposed to what I would call uh, a, a liberal conservative, um, which I think, you know, the Tory tradition in, in, in Great Britain, you know, modern conservatism in Great Britain, somebody like Disraeli or something like that, that there's a sacred center to the civic, the life of a nation. Um, and that we're, you know, uh, buttressing that sacred center is always important. Um, but that you, you want to do it with a spirit of liberality or to preserve the liberal element of your your own sacred tradition. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And you know, I think that conservatives are, um, they should be careful about getting tied up by labels and mm. you know, trying to say that everything must be, I guess there's a, a Gilbert and Sullivan line, right? Where uh, every <laughs> child that's born alive must be a little liberal or conservatized. Um, <laughs> one shouldn't do that. One should take ideas, you know, uh, based on their own merits and uh, not simply try to genealogically connect them to one source or another and say uh, whether that provides uh, their validity. And uh, so, you know, there are liberals who have uh, good things to tell us and uh, wisdom, and uh, there are conservatives who perhaps in their illiberalism go very far astray. And certainly I think one mistake that conservatives should be very careful to avoid is simply assuming that anything that is against liberalism has some sort of merit simply because it is anti-liberal. Uh, clearly, you know, in the context of uh, the middle of the 20th century, the illiberalism of the communist bloc and the illiberalism of Nazi Germany uh, were in no way commendable. Uh, but that's not to say that we therefore should be embracing an ideological liberalism of our own uh, that in many respects is just as uh, ambitious and just as transformative as an ideology like communism had been. Uh, and that, I think, is where we are right now in the United States, that um, you know, we don't have a pragmatic liberalism. We don't have a liberalism that is sort of chastened and reflective. This, by the way, I mean, as you uh, probably know, um, when Lionel Trilling back in the 1950s uh, described uh, a kind of desert of conservative thought and said that uh, with a few isolated ecclesiastical examples uh, that uh, you had only on the right uh, irritable mental gestures that seek to resemble ideas, uh, Trilling was not just being, uh, you know, sort of uh, critical and uh, dismissive of conservatives. He was actually trying to say that liberalism needed uh, a correction. Liberalism needed to listen to something that was not uh, simply predicated on its own ideological premises. 
And so Trilling said in the absence of a you know, really articulate conservatism that uh, literature would have to provide uh, that alternative to liberalism or that supplement to liberalism. And uh, of course, the irony is that even as Trilling was writing those lines, you had a great revival of conservative thought with Russell Kirk, uh, with Richard Weaver and others uh, in that era. Yes, I, um, uh, I, I remember reading that line in, in the liberal imagination and uh, bridling at it. But probably what he wrote that probably a book was published in 1950. So he probably wrote it in the late forties and there was some truth to it actually, I think. I mean, the great efflorescence of, uh, of conservative intellectual production was, I think, uh, maybe you know much more about this than I do. I think it was a reaction in part to the total mobilization of society during the war. I know that that really horrified both Kirk and Weaver to be part of this vast machine that, um, and that they, they really, whatever life was, it wasn't, the purpose of life was not to be a cog in a giant machine. That's right. Um, you know, one of the first books uh, to revive the label of conservatism in the American context in the post-war era is Peter Virick's Conservatism Revisited in 1949. And Virick is very much motivated by the idea that Western civilization has lost its, uh, its philosophical moorings, its political moorings, its, its moral moorings. And therefore, it needs to look for something more substantial than the liberalism of the New Deal and the liberalism of the 19th century, the Manchester School liberalism, uh, in order to recover uh, enough of a, a moral sense that it can avoid falling into either communism or into uh, Nazism. Russell Kirk and Richard Weaver uh, both uh, looked at, as you mentioned, the total mobilization during World War II, uh, the kind of mechanical approach to life uh, that was uh, adopted by military necessity. They also looked at the use of uh, the atomic bomb uh, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And they said, uh, you know, here we are, the most technologically advanced civilization that has ever existed. And we've created a weapon that uh, can annihilate civilians, you know, on a, a scale never before imagined. And uh, this is something that should call us to real repentance and moral reflection. And it's, you know, again, the military uh, question uh, can be bracketed and set off to a side, but the, the, the fundamental question of what is becoming of a civilization, first of all, winds up in a, you know, sort of, well, in fact, two uh, world wars and then a cold war after that. And that, uh, you know, is trying to use technical solutions and destruction as the uh, sort of uh, answer to the, uh, the moral crisis that brought all this about. Uh, this was something that it called uh, Russell, um, Russell Kirk and Richard Weaver to profound re reflection. Also, Evelyn Waugh, you find this very strongly in yes. Waugh's um, Sword of Honor trilogy of World War II novels. Yes, yeah, so a return to um, permanent things, I think it would be a way that, I mean, it's a Kirkian phrase. Um, that's how I would characterize um, post-war conservatism across many differences. Um, and that seems to be the Hazoni. I mean, that would be the category you would put as only. I mean, that book is a, especially the conservative way of life, of life portion in the final section of the book is a, a call for us to return to permanent things at a personal level. That's right. You know, one of the questions that uh, conservatives like uh, Richard Weaver wind up asking themselves is where did it all go wrong? And in the case of Richard Weaver, he famously indicts uh, William of Ockham yeah, well, for philosophical I think he was, nominalism. Do you know, was he reading um, Jacques Maritain, not Maritain, uh, Etienne Jusson? Because that's I a very. Because so. I read, I remember the first time I read the introduction to Ideas Have Consequences, I had read Jusson as part of my graduate study in theology. And I just said, 
it just sounds like kind of a, a precy of Gilson's argument in, in um, uh, the spirit of medieval philosophy. And so, yes. yeah, I don't know whether Weaver Nominalism is the root not. of all evil is basically the way I describe that position. <laughs> yeah, but even if even if Weaver had not been reading uh, Gilson himself, um, he certainly was reading Southern agrarians who I'm sure had read uh, Gilson. So. I know Alan Tate was very influenced by Etienne Gilson. Um, and you know his notion of angelism as one of the great besetting mm -hmm. heresies of, of modern thinking, is. A, I should say, by the way, I think one of the weaknesses both of Continenti's book and of Pazzoni's is that they both tend to be rather dismissive of uh, Southern agrarian thought and the traditionalism of people like Alan Tate and uh, you know um, so many other you know sort of Vanderbilt school thinkers. Yeah, and I while, think uh, you know there's it, it stands to reason, of course, that you know one would be embarrassed by. Uh, the political legacy of segregation and conservatism's, you know, inadequacy in dealing with it. Um, that is far from being the full story of uh, conservative thought in the South, uh, especially in the, you know, sort of um, interwar period and uh, early postwar period. Um, ISI has a, a volume of Alan Tate's critical essays, um, which are quite wide ranging and not just literary. And I think they they very much bear rereading. I think uh, a, a young person could profit greatly from from reading Alan Tate. Um, yeah, I think that's called Essays of Four Decades. Uh, yes, I, I do recommend it. Yep. So, well, um, we've we've ranged widely, um, fittingly so, given the scope of these two books, which also range very very widely. And I'd like to thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Rusty. It's been a delight. Thank you.